Welcome to Linda's Corner. My name is Linda Bjork, and today we're going to be talking about breaking the stigma around mental health struggles. I'm delighted to welcome special guest Sue Bowles. Sue is an abuse survivor, award-winning author, speaker, and master certified professional coach. You can learn more about Sue at her website, suebowles.com, and I'll include a link in the description. Welcome, Sue. I'm so glad that you could join with me today. Thanks for having me, Linda. I'm looking forward to this. I am too, and I appreciate what you're doing, and I'm excited to be talking about the different things. I'm excited to be talking about One Step Ahead, and I'm excited to hear your story. As you share your story, which is full of lots of unnice things, it does a couple of things for people. One, it gives people permission to 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 have their own stories, and it also helps helps people realize that it's okay to not be okay. Exactly. And so would you mind starting with your story and some of the, the things that you have been through? Sure. And Linda, before I start, I do always want to give a trigger warning because I never want my story to do harm to anybody else. Oh, boy. Uh, a couple of things I'm going to share have to do with sexual assault, have to do with eating disorders, uh, depressions, being suicidal. If any of that is a trigger for any of your listeners, please have a self-care plan in place. If you need to shut the show off and come back later, it'll be waiting for you. Again, I never want my story to do harm to anybody else. That's not why I speak. Uh, so having said that, um, Linda said that I had some unnice things happen to me. And that first unnice thing was being raped when I was in first grade by a classmate. And that was when I was seven years old. And I didn't tell anyone until my senior year of college. So I had a 15-year secret. So if you would imagine, knowing that trauma rewires your brain at a very instrumental age where your brain's really starting to develop and you're learning to think and feel and learn. And to go all the way through middle school, junior high, high school, already have a fault, having a faulty foundation. Then by the time I get to college, I'm, I'm really off base. In between that time, I, uh, my, you know, my dad was an alcoholic. Um, he's in recovery now and things are fantastic, but there were some rough years in there. I uh, grew up in a dysfunctional home. My parents divorced after 34 years of marriage, long after I was out of grad school. That still had an effect on me. Um, been suicidal twice, dabbled in cutting at one point in time, as recent as about seven years ago. So lots of secrets, and there's a lot to unpack. I know we have limited time, so I don't want to you know, get into more detail as much as you want to talk about. I'm happy to share. But I had, I had all that going on, depressed. You know, eating disorder really took root in college. And it really wasn't until 2016 that I finally went into recovery from the eating disorder. I didn't deal with the rape until 2014, over four decades after the event. So just a lot of things. Um, and, and for the longest time, I was mad at God. I was like, I was hacked off. I'm like, why would you let all that happen? Any one of those things is a lot for a person to handle. And for some reason, it all came my way. And, and, and while I don't understand the why, I understand now the what. And what I mean by that is that it allows me to relate to so many more people with my story to, again, as you said, give them permission to have their story and to own their story. That healing journey is, is gut-wrenching, and it starts with accepting your story and owning your story. And I was in denial over my story until 2014. I hated my story. 
And when I finally got involved in the retreat program and through that was able to start finding my healing journey. And that first step was owning my story. The next step was grieving my story because there is a lot of loss in my story that I had never grieved. And I never thought about having to grieve your story. That's not something you hear people talk about. And then the third year, when I started to believe that I mattered and that I, that, that I was valuable to God, that's when things started to change. That's when the book started happening. That's when I started finding hope myself. And it was in a couple of years after that, I started speaking. And now the speaking has, has just blown up and the life coaching and so many other things. And if you had told me in 2014 that here I am seven and a half years, eight years later doing this, I wouldn't have believed you because I didn't believe I had anything of value for anybody else. I bought the lie and I'm glad that I found the truth. Wow. I am too. Sue, thank you. And you know, as we talk to different people who also have their stories, it seems like different people present things in different ways. And sometimes it might be the way that Sue presents things and the way that she shares things is exactly the way that resonates with them so that they say, wait a minute. So Sue believes that she has value. She didn't always believe that. She wasn't one of the, the chosen lucky ones who have always had the sunshine and rainbows. And now she believes it. So maybe, maybe it's true. Maybe, maybe I have value as well. And so I, I very much appreciate you stepping up to the plate and bringing your, your value and your experiences to the table to help heal other people. I love when people pay it forward. And as we all reach out and help each other and create just this beautiful network of people who say, hey, life can be hard and yet we can be okay. And I loved your turnaround point. Was there anything that happened that made you realize that switch that God loves me, not, not just people, but me? Yes. I mentioned a retreat program I'm part of. There was in 2014, a movie came out called Ragamuffin. It was based on the life of the late Christian musician, Rich Mullins. And if people are familiar with his songs, the big one was Awesome God. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns with power and love. Very popular in the 90s. So the movie was a really hard watch for me, especially the first 20 minutes. And later in the summer, the, uh, the producer and the family friends of Rich who were involved in the movie decided to do a retreat to continue the themes of the movie. And one of those themes had to do with authentic living and being authentic and, and uh, being genuine taking off our masks and I felt God pulling me there. It was the year that I was starting to deal with the rape. So I was imploding and I, I wasn't feeling real lovable. I, I was, I was actually going downhill again. And, um, I finally signed on for the retreat and I went into the retreat call in retrospect. I see this. I called myself the holy exception. At that point I had believed the lie that everything in the Bible was good enough for out for everybody else. But me, I was too screwed up, too far gone. I was a waste of space. And that's, that's, that's basically what it was. A staff member has since said that first retreat was kind of like a Hail Mary for me. To Could God love me? And could his kids love me? And I left that retreat three days later saying and starting to believe. There's just, just a glimmer of starting to believe that Jesus Christ loves me. And he not only loves me, he likes me. And there's a really big 
difference there and that I have that matter that, 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 that people love me, you know, and, and, and that he's absolutely crazy about me. One thing that's really powerful about these retreats is that it's not the people. There's nothing magical about the retreat. They set the environment and they get out of the way so the Holy Spirit can do his job. Now, I spent six weeks with my counselor getting ready for this, having to deal with a lot of anxiety and authenticity because I had never shared my story publicly. And one of the things with the retreat is they open up a Facebook group for anyone in the retreat. That first year, we were all strangers, and they asked us to share our story. I stalked in the room for about three days. I was encouraging others. I was reading other stories, and I wasn't saying a word about mine. And I finally got that, you know, that, that, that heartbeat happening when you know it's about time. And I shared my story for the first time. And all throughout the rest of the day, I was expecting to get trashed. I was expecting to get blamed, to get beat down, because it's all I had experienced up to that point in time. And I can say it's now, what, seven and a half years since that first retreat. I have not had one, and I'm dead serious, not one negative comment about my story. Instead, people flooded the responses all day long of, you're so brave. I want to hug you. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for trusting us. I can't wait to meet you. And all from the start, I was loved for who I was as messed up as I was. So I kept going back and that third year, and again, it was a process. You know, I had to own the story the first year. Then I had to grieve it. And there were a lot of tears and some really hard crying. You know, I mean, like 10 or 15 minutes of <gasps> crying because that's just what God was doing. He was emptying the bucket that I had held on to for four plus decades. Um, and then the third year, I left with the nugget that I am valuable to God. And that's when it started. So when I was around people who loved me and accepted me and they were Jesus, they are Jesus with skin on. I, I go to the retreat every year. We actually do it twice a year. Our next one's coming up at the end of April called Walking Stick Retreats. It's going to be in Southeast Indiana and, and it's open to anybody. We want more people to come and, and have a safe place where it's okay to be broken. It's okay to ask questions and it's okay you know, to not be okay. And at the same time, it's totally fine to be doing okay as well. It's a community. It, it's, it's, it's love and action. Um, and that is what, that started to turn the corner for me. That gave me the hope that, that the morsel of belief that I mattered. And as soon as I dared to believe that I mattered, because one thing for people to tell you, but until you dare to believe and start walking in that, even when you don't feel it, that's when things started to change. Wow. Okay. I may cry just a little bit, but that's okay. Because as I'm listening to this, I feel not only some echoes of my story, but also those of people that I know and love and care about that are in different stages of this process. And as you mentioned, it, it did not happen overnight. It took this time and, and a, and a heavy load of first that, that natural knee jerk reaction to run and hide from our oh, issues is so strong. And it's kind of hard to describe how hard that is to, can I just, can I just pretend it didn't happen? It was horrible. Can we just pretend it didn't happen? And, and a lot of people think, you know, well, time heals wounds, right? So if, if it's been long enough, then you should be better. You should just oh. naturally be better. 
And the truth is, as you can well attest, time does not heal our wounds. It it can bury them, it can hide them, but it doesn't heal them. And the process of healing is so very different than just the process of of coping and being able to keep, you know, getting up in the morning and breathing in and out and that sort of thing. And so I agree, you are so brave. And as you face this and as you move forward, and the scary, scary, scary thing of facing it and all of the repercussions you were expecting didn't even happen. Instead, you were surrounded by by love and support and how beautiful that you were able to find a place with that love and support. Because like you mentioned, we don't get that everywhere. And you were in different places where if you had shared that story, you would not have had that response. And so it does matter who we choose to surround ourselves with. So, wow. Thank you. Very much so. And, and one, of, one of the things that, that we talked about that first year, and I, I, usually, I speak about often when I, when I do speak, is the difference between having wounds and having scars. All of us are wounded. All of us, are, we're not going to get through life without having some kind of wounds, some kind of hurt, different degrees. Might be a scratch, might be a gaping wound. But using that analogy, if all you do is bandage a wound and try to cover it up, it's still bleeding underneath. You haven't treated the wound. You've covered it, and it's still susceptible to infection. And until we take that hard step, and I and I mean hard, that first step of reaching out for help is the hardest one of all, believe it or not. But it's the one that gives the most life. But until we take that step, our wound is still bleeding and we're still going to have infection because we don't have any, any other option to check our self-talk. We don't have any other option than what we are seeing with our blinders on. And, and when we are caught up in our blinders, think of horses that have blinders. So they can't see outside. All they can see is in front of them. Well, if your front is skewed and that's all you see, you will, if over time, you will become hopeless and you will feel You'll be on the same path I was on, feeling like you're a waste of space. And that's not a, that's not a landslide you want to go down. Mm-hmm. So until we do the hard work of healing, when you have a wound, if a doctor has to give you stitches, first you've got to clean it out, and that hurts. Because they don't numb you at that point in time when they're cleaning it out. They just got to clean it out and see how bad it is. They numb you before they start doing the stitches. That's part of the treatment. But when you have to start the process of healing. It hurts. But here's the thing, is that as you treat it and you watch the healing happen, you now have a scar. And that scar is a story of hope for other people. We might have a surgery scar and tell them about what happened. I've got a scar through my eyebrow that when I was young, I was playing trampoline. I jumped off the bed and smashed my eye through my eyebrow through the corner of a cedar chest. I have a story about my scar, but it has healed. The same thing is as we do the hard work of emotional healing, our wounds will become scars and those scars become stories of hope for other people. Wow. Okay. I love that. Now, one of the things that I would like to cover, if that's okay, I want to talk about your one step ahead and how you are now You've been an experienced part of a group and you continue that. And now you've created a group that is this safe place to say, here's where we're at and here's where we're going. 
So can you explain that a little bit? Sure. My Step Ahead is my business name. And the, the concept behind it came from two different things. It came from a friend of mine when I was suicidal, a friend of mine on a ski trip, talked about watching his feet and how each, each, each step he would tell himself, one more step. I made it this far. One more step. And then the other half of it came from a teaching from my, from my, pa- my pastor talking about growth. And he, he said, what does it help? What does it take to help the person, to, to help somebody else grow? You only have to be a step ahead. The concept between my, about my step ahead is that while I, I, I still have a counselor, I've been with her May, April will be 14 years. And, and, and it's, it's, it's just fantastic. We have such a fantastic relationship. So while I'm reaching out ahead for help because Amanda's ahead of me, I'm, I can reach back and help the person who's just starting the journey or might be a step or two behind me because I can take the story that I have, the experiences I have up to this point in time. So while I'm reaching out for help to put my next step, I'm still reaching back to help the person behind me. And together we form a human chain of support that that's the concept behind my step ahead is that you only have to be a step ahead to help the person behind you. So many times we like to think that we have to have it all figured out before we can be of, be of use. And that's a lot. I really appreciate that concept. The The mental image I have is those little plastic barrel of monkeys, how you have the little oh, hand, that link, and it creates that's a, a great link. Image. And it helps make it so that we can start helping someone else today. I mean, exactly. we don't have to wait until we get it all figured out because I may never get it all figured out, you know? Right. So and, that, and, that, and that's exactly it, is that you know, part of my step ahead and wanting to help break the stigma is that well, I think we, we all have fear that I'm not good enough that I don't have anything to offer, that I'm not special. I don't have anything in my story that can make a difference. And those are all lies. All of us can help. I got a chance to live this almost a year ago now. We, I was my mom's caregiver. She passed away October 2020. April 2021, someone I know lost her father tragically. And another friend of myself went to her house. And there was concern expressed if I would, you know, if it was too much for me. Because it only been you know six months for for me, and I was you know, mom lived with me since 1997, and I was her caregiver the last eight years of her life. So there was concern for that, and I said, I guess we're going to find out. And I went there, and while there were tears, by the end of the time, the person who had just lost her dad was asking me questions because they're getting to go to the funeral home. Well, what, what what about this? What will the funeral home do? What do I do about this? How's this handled? And I was able to share what my experience had just been a few months prior. I wasn't that far ahead of her. I was grieving like there was no tomorrow because I, I was just, I was just hurt and I lost my best friend. And yet I was able to reach out behind me or to the, you know, behind me and help the person who was just starting down her grief journey. That's the power of my step ahead. I didn't have it all figured out. I was grieving. I was missing my mom. I was still trying to figure out who I was and where I just landed, but that much I could do. And I later found out that person had told others how much that meant to her. That's the power of my step ahead. That's the power of using whatever you have to help somebody else, because that also does something inside us. 
that also gives us confidence. That helps build that, that, that fans that flame of being, of, of believing that you matter. Remember how I said, dare to believe that you matter? When we start walking that out, even when we don't feel it, it starts to fan that flame. And I, in the middle of my grief, I was able to help out somebody else. And it helped me realize that even though I was confused and lost and trying to figure out where, what was happening and where I was going next, I was still able to help somebody else out. And that helped me have a little more direction of, okay, I can do this. I might be, you know, sitting on the side of the road right now, pretty bumped up and bruised, but I'm not done. I can still, I can still make a difference. And being that one step ahead rather than many steps ahead put you in the perfect position to be able to assist because the information was fresh and Mm -hmm. you didn't have it all figured out. Sometimes in our attempts to help and lift other people, we say things that are, are unintentionally very unhelpful, like, Oh, everything will be fine and don't worry about it. And just, you know, oh, you shouldn't be feeling this way or something. And, and the intention is to lift, but what is actually occurring is it's belittling and not allowing someone to feel what they feel and to go through the process themselves. Sometimes we think, well, I, I'll, I'll remove the process for you. I'm just going to pick you up and set you over here. And we can't do that. It doesn't work. And not allowing people to have their own process and to feel their own feelings is demeaning. It's not empowering. Very much so, because two things are going on there. Most likely we're trying to rescue because we're uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and we don't know how to handle it. So I can at least fix, if I fix the situation, then I fix my situation too. The second thing is, is and I, I tell people this, the worst thing you can say to anyone at any point in time, not just in the middle of grief or anything like that, is you shouldn't feel that way. You have just told that person they don't matter. That is what you have just communicated. Oh, you shouldn't feel that way. You, you're telling them not to trust what they're feeling. You're telling them not to feel what they're feeling. And you're letting them know that you are not someone they can talk to when they need to express what they're feeling. That's what you have just done when you say you shouldn't feel that way. Yep. And then the message we get in addition to all of those other things is in order for me to associate with other people, I'm not allowed to feel. I have to stuff all my feelings in Mm -hmm. so that I can talk to other people and associate with them. And, And then other people are not a safe place for us. So it makes sense. And then, and then the isolation starts and the downward spiral uh-huh. and, and everything that we just tried to reverse, you just went down another, another step, step down the slippery slope. And isn't that interesting? And you made a clarifying point because I suggested that this was done to help the other person. And I think on, on our conscious level, it probably is. Uh-huh. But the real underlying level is... I don't feel comfortable. You're, I don't feel comfortable with the way that you feel because it's triggering something in me mm-hmm. and I'm not comfortable. So right. it is on the surface trying to be nice, but under, under the surface and the, the reality is that it's selfish. All right. Very much so. And a lot of times it's, it's, it's a well-intentioned, but not really helpful. Yeah. Situation. I mean, the intention is, is good. You want to help alleviate the stress for your friend. 
that's fantastic. But then we have the skill, the art is learning the best way to do that. And a lot of that means we're dying to ourselves. And, and, and that's hard because when we feel helpless and, 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 you know, when you're sitting with someone who's experiencing grief and you're like, I don't know what to say. And, and I, you know, they're crying and I don't know what they want and I can't fix this. And I'm kind of feeling stuck and I don't want to leave there, but I really don't know what to do. The best thing you can ask is what's the best way I can help you right now? Give that person some control. Because they're feeling like they just lost all control. And then that takes the pressure off you to have to figure it out. When, when if we would just die to ourselves and our fear and take that courage to say, I, I know you're hurting and I care about you. I don't know the best way to help you. So you tell me, what do you need right now? How can I best help you? And don't even list off options. Wait for them. And if they say they don't know, then you can toss out, would you like me to do something? Or do you just want to sit in silence? And I'm happy to just sit in silence with you and just be here. But give them the control. Because any time that we are feeling uncomfortable, it's because we're in a situation where we don't have control. Usually because someone else is feeling the same way. And it's we die to ourselves when we let them take control and not us and that is a high act of love putting someone beside uh, in front of yourself you've created such a beautiful win-win situation where you're empowering someone and at the same time uh, lowering that feeling of responsibility where right. sometimes we feel like we need to fix it and by allowing them to have the power also means I don't have the responsibility to fix it. My responsibility right. is to love and support. And mm -hmm. so getting some direction. Love it. Love it. Oh, thank but, you. And, 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 and an easy way to think about it, if the table was turned, what would you want your friend? How would you want your friend to interact with you? What would you want? What, and I know you're not in that situation, but if you think about it, think of a time when you were hurting and you felt lost, what did you need from your friends? And what are the ones who acted the way you really wanted that you remember now? And I bet you realize those are still the ones that you feel very fondly towards. That is so helpful. So can we talk just a little bit about eating disorders? To me, sure, this one to. is interesting because we talked about wounds and scars and the eating disorder is still something, it's, it's not done. It's something that's still a struggle. Is that correct? Or, or are you done? At times, yes. When, when, when stress is high, yes, very much so. When mom was passing away or in the hospital, very much so. Right. Yep. And that takes, I believe, an extra measure of courage because it's not one of those things where it's like, see what I have overcome and how marvelous I am for climbing that mountain. It's I am still on the pathway of this mountain, and but I am a step ahead, and here's my process and what I'm doing. Yeah, uh, the eating disorder that I am in recovery from is called Ausfed. And, and, and what I say, first of all, is that if, you, if your listeners think a minute, and, and when you hear the word eating disorder, what comes to your mind? Do you think of the person who's skin and bones? 
or maybe in your, your mind overeating or binging or, or, or overweight in your mind or anything like that. And I'm here to tell you there's no look to an eating disorder. Interesting. If I were not open and telling people I had an eating disorder, most likely no one would even think about it because I don't look, whatever that means, the part. But the, so I have OSFED, which stands for Other Specified Feeding and Eating Disorder. There are more eating disorders out there than anorexia, bulimia, and, and binge eating. There are many more out there. The one I have means that I have disordered eating. I have a poor relationship with food, but I don't meet all the diagnostic criteria for any specified eating disorder. Doesn't mean it's any, any, any better or any worse. Eating disorders are the second most lethal of all mental health issues. Really? And they, they used to be number one. They are now second only to opioid addiction. And that's just in the last couple of years. And they are the most lethal, not only because of the suicide involved, but also because of the damage that is done to the body and how that takes the wear and tear on it. Because if you are not feeding your body properly, and I'm not talking health guru, I'm talking balanced eating three times a day in a consistent manner, snacks in between, and not over, not going super high on carbs or cutting all the carbs out. I'm talking your, your body needs carbs, fats, and proteins. Carbs are the only thing that give your brain energy. Fats are the only thing that protect your vital organs and give you the sensation of being full. And protein is the only thing that rebuilds your body and your strength. So diets, eating disorders are not a diet gone wrong. And diets are based on restriction. Why on God's green earth would we deny our body what God has designed it to need? I like that approach. Because, and, and, and I had to learn all this. I had to relearn how to eat. I, my, my eating disorder became because I got uncomfortable in college. I had painted the mask of Sue has it all together. Sue's the strong one. Sue has no needs. And again, remember I had this trauma at age seven that I had not dealt with. So by the time, the, fr the longer you're in the ice box, the thicker the ice gets. So my ice around my head was really thick by this time because I wasn't thinking clearly because I didn't have that foundation because of the trauma that rewired my brain. So my brain found different ways of processing things that were not healthy. So by the time this happens, I think it was junior year probably, um, I didn't have a lot of friends that I ate with in the cafeteria. I was involved in a lot, but I didn't have a lot of close friends. So when I was hungry, I may have enjoyed another circle of food. Totally perfect need. God-given need. Food. But my brain warped it out that I would be found out, quote, unquote. That suddenly everyone, in quotes, would know that Sue had a need. And my cover would be blown. So I got uncomfortable with that. I dumped my tray, got out of Dodge, and I started snacking. And I would curb my hunger by snacking. That's what started my eating disorder. So with all that, I had to relearn how to eat. And when, when I finally, my, my, in 2014, I talked about you know, starting to deal with the ribs, my counselor. As we're going through all that, because emotions are not the friend of an eating disorder person. Eating disorders have nothing to do with food and everything to do with some type of unresolved issue or issues. Yep. I had a lot of them. So my eating disorder, when I started dealing with the rape, and then all the emotions, which I've hated up to this point in time in my life, 
my eating disorder behavior started kicking up too, because that was how I protected myself from uncomfortable emotions. So I had the double whammy going on. I started losing weight again. My counselor was not relenting this time. And I'm very thankful, even though I fought her at that point in time. Um, and we got a dietitian involved. My homework the first week was just eat. When you're hungry, eat. I had to learn to start listening to my body cues again. And then she had a meal plan for me. And we started focusing on just breakfast. Just eat your exchanges for breakfast. That's all I want you to do. Just breakfast. And when I say exchanges, my meal plan is based off the diabetic exchange system. Where uh, looking at food labels and serving size, you have a number of different different micrograms of carbs, fats, and proteins per serving. So however many it is equates to so many exchanges. So then you, know, you do all the calculations and that's, you know, so like for, me, for example, for me, my breakfast is three servings each, three, three exchanges each of fats, proteins, and carbs. So for me, I do a cup of 4% uh, cottage cheese. I'll do a pack of oatmeal and then I'll do something else has a carb. It might be an English muffin with, buff, with butter. It might be a single pop tart, not a pack because that puts me over, but you know, and, and it, to me, all this sounded like a lot to eat when I first started. And, and she gave me my meal plan. And she's like, well, what do you think? And I started crying. I'm like, this is an awful lot, you know? And now I don't think about it, which I never thought I'd get to this point. But as I started finding healing, the opportunity to start speaking came. And I, I started by speaking at the local health class at the high school. And then it became speaking at state conferences for college, college student personnel association people. And now I've presented twice on virtually at a national conference done by the University of Maryland's College of Medicine. So, you know, and then the podcast started, and the book came out. So all kinds of stuff. But it's all about breaking the stigma around eating disorders and educating about them because there's so much misinformation about it. February 21st to 27th is National Eating Disorder Awareness Week. And I, I'm thankful for the opportunity to speak and, and, and just share, not only share my story, but to educate because there's so much misinformation out there. And I think the big one, first of all, is that people don't realize how lethal it is and how big it is. And, and having all of the athletes and, and professional musicians and everybody else who are coming out now sharing about their struggles. There were, um, who was that? Gracie Gold, I believe was an ice skater. And she was in. And the, I think bronze medals in, in the Olympics came out you know, a couple of years ago talking about her eating disorder. There's a ski jumper who came out this year. So many different people. Michael Phelps coming out talking about depression. Demi Lovato in the music industry coming out and talking about her eating disorder. Because it is so common. And the more we start, we start this whole conversation talking about trying to break the stigma around mental health. The more we talk about it, the more we normalize it, and the less the stigma becomes. Yes. So thank you for sharing your story um, with, with me here today and our listeners and with all of these other speaking engagements that you've done. Every time you reach someone, it again gives people permission to not be okay mm -hmm. and to own their own stories. Because right now, we're, uh, can you think of any person who hasn't been through some kind of trauma? They're different, but everyone has issues. And if we all think, oh, I'm the only one that has had any problems. I am the only one that doesn't have it all together. I mean, look at my Facebook. Everybody else has it all together. So it's <laughs> got to be just me. So I have to hide in this little shell. And then we have a whole bunch of hurting people that don't need to be hurting. 
instead of just saying, hey, welcome to life and let's link arms and let's help each other through it because you're okay. Yeah, it's okay to not be okay. And you only have to be a step ahead, help the person behind you. You can make a difference now. I was one of those people who felt I didn't matter, felt I was too screwed up, that was going down the hole and, and, and felt very isolated. And now that I have let people in, you know, that first step is hard. That first step to share your story, be it to reach out for help or in my situation, share it you know, with, the, with the retreat folks that I have 50 total strangers I was going to meet two weeks later. And, and spend three days with. And, and you know, I, I felt very much like everybody knew my story and what I was coming there to work on, but that was okay. It really was okay. It was wonderful. But all of that to say that as, as, as this whole journey has happened, now that I'm, I don't want to say I'm, I'm fully on the other side because, you know, there are, there are still struggles. They're different. And, and, and they wouldn't have been a struggle years ago because I wasn't at this point. But with each phase of life, you have different things come up. That's why I still have a counselor, so I can have some kind of sane, <laughs> sane input in my life to keep me balanced. <laughs> so, but um, and, and we discover a few things that we didn't realize were there before that we're dealing with right now. But all that to say, as as I've done that hard work to healing, I used to let all these events define me. I was this. I was this. This happened to me. Therefore, I am whatever. And now I've been able to spin that on the head. And say, no, I define the effect these things have had on me. It doesn't change what happened. What changes is how I now view it and see it as a springboard where I can now help others. That's why my website says I'm a voice of hope. Because everybody needs hope. And I now have a platform where I can be that for others and help them on their next step ahead. Wow. Thank you. Sue, thanks for visiting with me today. This has been fantastic. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. In closing, I'd like to share a quote by John Maxwell. He said, being one step ahead makes you a leader. Being 50 steps ahead could make you a martyr. Today, I invite you to take one step ahead and then reach out to help the people behind you. See you next time on Linda's Corner. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Linda's Corner, please share and subscribe to help us reach new listeners. I also invite you to check out my nonprofit, Hope for Healing, at the website hopeforhealingfoundation.org for free ebooks, free audiobooks, and other free resources to help increase happiness, build confidence and self esteem, strengthen relationships, manage stress, and calm feelings of depression and anxiety. I also invite you to grab a copy of one of my books, like Crushed A Journey Through Depression, or Amazon bestseller You Got This an action plan to calm fear, anxiety, worry, and stress. See you next time on Linda's Corner.